Well, thank you, choir. You guys sung that like you meant it. Wow. You know what? And that's a great theme for us to talk about the worthiness of, of Christ. Because as we talk about fasting, that's the reason we do it. Because he's worthy. He, he is worthy of a sacrifice on our part. Now, we have been in the, um, in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Sermon on the Mount for several weeks now, uh, many weeks. And uh, Jesus has moved into a section where he's talking about real-world religion, real-world spirituality. And so he's talked about um, giving, he's talked about praying, and today he talks about fasting. He's talking about just kind of normal religious practices that religious people do. The, the problem is when we get to fasting, you know, I've, I've heard people go, you know, man, uh, really enjoyed our prayer meeting last night. Or, you know, today had a great time in the Word. I've never heard anyone go, my fasting rocks. Woo! Fasting! Favorite spiritual discipline. And so you hear about people who spend time in the Word, and you hear there are people who have a reputation for being prayer warriors. But as Jesus is kind of listing out these disciplines, when's the last time you've heard someone talk about fasting? Why in the world would someone not eat? I mean, after all, God gave us taste buds, right? Amen? He gave us taste buds because not everything tastes like bland mashed potatoes. You know, a nice, juicy steak, medium rare. All you charcoal, briquette, well done, cook all the flavor out of it, I'll pray for you. A nice bowl of ice cream. You ever tried to explain ice cream? You've been to a culture where they don't have it? How do you explain it? It's cold, smooth, creamy. God gave us taste buds to enjoy. So why would anyone fast? We're going to talk about that because Christ is worthy. And this is a discipline that we can do to glorify him. And so if you are following along in your own copy of the scriptures, we'll be in Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 through 24. And we're going to look at things a little bit differently Um, I said this in the first service, and and somebody said it was helpful, so I'll repeat it. Um, Most people don't realize this, but the chapters and verses were not added until the late 1500s. So sometimes, and it was not inspired by the Holy Spirit. It was just kind of a categorization process. And so sometimes, where the chapters end, we tend to think like the thought stops and he starts something new in chapter 6. And a lot of times, there's a some uh, return that's hit. There's some space between one verse and the other, and we completely separate it. So we think that verse um, 19, for instance, doesn't have anything to do with what Jesus is saying in verse 16 through 18. So we're going to look at things a little bit differently today to to understand that fasting is not some strange kind of ascetic monk-like practice, but it is a very practical way for us to say that we treasure Christ more than we do that perfectly cooked steak, that bowl of ice cream. So uh, pray with me this morning as we ask for God's help. God, we do ask that you help us to treasure you. We, we pray that you make your word real to us in such a way that we want to obey, that we want to demonstrate to a world that is so lost that you are the way, the truth, the life, that your light determines how we walk and that we will follow you. In Jesus' name we pray. Well, Jesus begins 
his, this conversation in verse 16 of Matthew chapter 6. He says this, Whenever you fast, which assumes that his followers will, whenever you fast, don't be sad-faced like the hypocrites. For they make their faces unattractive, they disfigure themselves, so that their fasting is obvious to people. I assure you, they've got their reward. But when you fast... Put oil on your head and wash your face so that you don't show your fasting to people, but to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Now this sounds kind of similar. Jesus is warning against hypocrisy. As a matter of fact, our first point is that fasting, like any other spiritual practice, is not for advertisement. We're not supposed to pray in such a way Uh, we're not to pray specifically for the benefit of our listeners unless the listener we're talking about is God. We We don't do it for a show. And Jesus is saying here, fasting, like any other practice, is not for advertisement. He's calling out these three specific practices that we've looked at over the last couple of weeks. He said, you can um, give in a hypocritical way. You can pray in a hypocritical way. You can fast in a hypocritical way. And it's not like the Pharisees have the corner on the market for hypocrisy. You know why perhaps a majority of your friends are not in church this morning? In their opinion, we're all hypocrites. And they're at least partially right. We all live better than we believe. And so Jesus is not saying, hey, here's a comprehensive list of all the ways you can be a hypocrite. No, because then the Sermon on the Mount would be a lot longer because there are anything you do, you can do hypocritically. And so Jesus is calling this out. So when we talk about this practice of fasting, what in the world is it? Well, here's, here's a good kind of a simple definition. Fasting is a biblical practice in which someone chooses to abstain from something to pursue some kind of spiritual goal. It's not just food. You know, I, I hear, and it's not Christians, it's just people in the world today, uh, people in the business world particularly, who are calling for a fast from media. Put the phone down, put the laptop away, get, don't, don't touch the tablet, and go on a media fast for the weekend. No, nothing with a screen for the entire weekend. Could, you, could anybody make it? You know, in the first service, that's not so much of a challenge. In the second service, some of y'all look like your phone, you get the little things too, where like you wear your phone on your ear. All right? Don't do that. That's not cool. Um, People think weird things about people if you wear that little phone piece all the time. Like, it's so important that you're going to get a phone call. you got to wear it all the time in church, to bed, to the bathroom. Nobody needs to be that connected to any kind of piece of technology. So if it's you, we'll pray for you. Um, Go on a media fast. It will be liberating for your soul. And so the point is you can give up all kinds of things. You can give up media. You can give up movies, you can give up TV, you can give up things that you have a natural right to to enjoy, but you're giving it up for some spiritual purpose. Fasting is not like the Yahweh diet. It is not a way for you to lose weight. It is a way for you to state your priorities, say this is what's important. In the Old Testament, the fast was really only commanded on the Day of Atonement. The only fast prescribed in the Bible was on the Day of Atonement. But as um, history went on, fasts popped up for all kinds of different reasons. And a lot of times when we hear the word um, fasting, it's usually joined to something by the word A-N-D, and. That fasting as a spiritual practice is joined to prayer. They committed themselves to prayer and fasting. Why those two? Because usually when you're fasting, you're allowing the grumbling in your belly to remind you that it's more important for you to depend upon God 
than it is for you to depend upon your next meal. God, thanks for the reminder. I need you and I need your bread, your word of life, more than I need crust. That's what it's about. Now, it's, it's usually used for several different purposes, and this is not original with me. William Hendrickson, a great Bible commentator, said these, there are three uh, specific purposes uh, enjoined to fasting. It's used for, number one, humiliation. It's a way to confess your sin to God. Lord, I repent in sackcloth and ashes, and I, I fast to demonstrate my repentance. So it's used to humble yourself in the sight of the Lord. It's used for humiliation. Number two, it's used for lamentation. It's used for humiliation. It's used for lamentation. You are lamenting some kind of tragedy. In the Old Testament specifically, they would see, they would see an army on their borders coming in, getting ready to invade them. And they would go, dear Lord, what have we done to bring this judgment upon us? And they would proclaim a national fast to lament their sin that brought about God's judgment. So they would um, use a fast to lament. But thirdly, they would use it for concentration, humiliation, lamentation, and concentration. The very first missionaries in the New Testament were selected through prayer and fasting. Now, teaching point, we selected deacons. We We don't know who they are yet. Somebody's back there counting it up. Did you just circle names on a page? Go, hey, he's cool. I like him. Uh, you know what? Yeah, this is his second time on the ballot. He should get a shot. Did you pray? In the early church, when they were picking leadership, it was not just, you know, rub-a-dub-dub, let's pray and get it over with. It was let's call ourselves to prayer and fasting as we seek to hear God's voice for what he wants us to do. So three things fasting is associated with. Now, the truth is when you fast, um, it usually kind of shows up in your countenance in some way, shape, or form. Um, for me, mess with my sleep, and you can tell. You know, my eyes get bloodshot. I get the, the, the gray marks under your eyes. You just look kind of sullen. You mess with, some people, you mess with their food, you can tell. Like their eyes don't sparkle. They're a little bit more irritable. No one in my family. Um, nobody loves food. Um, and, and Jesus is saying, hey, don't, when you fast, in the Old Testament, there were some appearance issues. They wore sackcloth. They put ashes on their head. And then they'd walk around with sackcloth, ash head, and like demonstrate that they're fasting. And Jesus said, don't do that. Wash yourself. Like, use shampoo. Um, don't fast from your hygiene. You know, fast and try to do it privately. Try not to do it so that you're being showy. You're not doing it for the praise of men. Because he's saying these guys, when they fasted, they did it because they wanted to be noticed by men. They wanted that kind of attention. And Jesus said, you got their attention. But guess what? That's all you're going to get. Because I'm not paying attention. Because you're not doing this for me. You're doing this to be uh, an ostentatious showman. So spiritual disciplines are not to be advertised. Now, the truth is fasting is not bad. It is not bad. It is hypocritical fasting that Jesus is condemning. Jesus fasted. You remember his fast? 40 days and nights. Supernatural fast. Don't, don't, don't do that. Um, that's, that's not that go and do likewise. That is just supernaturally he was sustained to be able to do that. that that's uh, incredible. Uh, and he expected his disciples to fast too. He just wanted them to do it right. I love this phrase, um, 
our Puritan forefathers would use this uh, fancy phrase called mortification of the flesh. What's mortification? Killing. How do you kill the flesh to make your spirit alive? Well, fasting is one of those spiritual disciplines that helps to mortify the flesh. You say no to a fleshly desire to give power to a spiritual desire. Well, listen to this phrase. He says, the mortification of the flesh is better attained through habitual temperance than occasional abstinence. What does that mean? The mortification of the flesh is better attained through habitual temperance than it is through occasional abstinence. Listen, anybody can give something up for Lent. You know, you hear people go, hey, I gave up chocolate for Lent. Ooh, wow, big sacrifice. I gave up fish for Lent. I don't even like fish. You know? Um, I gave up soap operas for Lent. Ooh, wow. I don't, I'm not even home during the day to watch that junk. Um, you know, he's saying, discipline yourself. Don't just kind of sign up for the event once a year. That doesn't actually mortify the flesh. You might be doing it just because everybody else is doing it. You feel the peer pressure to do it. He's saying the mortification of the flesh is better attained by living this way instead of just doing something for a couple days a year. And even really your heart not being in it. So he's telling us to be careful how we fast. But then... I think for our second point, and he makes this clear in the next part of the scriptures, that fasting, when it is properly motivated, reveals important priorities. Fasting, properly motivated, reveals important priorities. For each of these three things that we're about to talk about, there is a choice to be made and an application of that choice. And so he continues on, and he starts in verses 19 19 through 21, saying something that you guys are familiar with. And I think this is vitally connected to this whole stuff that he's talking about. When he talks about how you give, and he talks about how you pray, and he talks about how you fast, he says, be careful about doing it for other people's praise, because they have their reward in full. So there is some kind of reward, there is some kind of treasure that comes from doing things, and it's either an earthly treasure or a spiritual treasure. Listen to what Jesus says. Don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth, rewards on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here's the choice. What treasure will you set your heart upon? This is an issue of the heart. And he says, all right, what treasure are you going to set your heart upon? Where are your affections? What are you aiming for? And when he says, don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, the force of the verb is stop storing up. So the implication is everybody's in the game. Everybody's in the game. Everybody wants more stuff. Christians, non-Christians alike. And he's saying, for those of you that follow Christ, stop it. Make a decisive break with the pattern of this world and stop storing up stuff. Stop it. Don't do it. You're not judged by how many toys you have. You're not eval- your character is not um, in some way tied up to what the state says your vehicle is worth. Because in my case, it's probably negative. Um, you want to get my tax statement. They pay me to keep driving my car. Um, you're, not, you're not judged on your zip code or your apartment complex or your condo or your square footage. And he says, here, listen, you can't even safeguard it. You give nature enough time, and it will rot it. You give time enough time, and it will uh, corrode it. 
You give man enough time and he's depraved, he will steal it. The stuff that we grab for, fame, why do we call it 15 minutes of fame? Because it's fickle. It likes you now, but it will forget you quick. And the glory that we fight for fades the minute we get a hold of it. Even if you could safeguard it against nature and time and human depravity and the fickleness of fame and the fading of glory, you can't control the length of your life. So you spend all this time accumulating stuff, and Jesus says, you fool, tonight your very life is required of you. It's been said, it's really a tragedy to keep climbing the ladder and at the end of life find out that it's leaning against the wrong wall. That stinks. Now when he talks about this treasure, we we tend to think of it as just stuff, materialism. Here's the thing that I think is ironic, is like we think like we're going to be better because of the stuff that we have. You know, if I use Colgate, pretty girls will kiss me. You know, if I drive this car, that's true for me. Um, but uh, a girl, a girl, let me, or, or uh, three girls back there. Um, we tend to think like stuff like makes us more important. And so we accumulate stuff because we think that's going to give us security It's going to give us standing. Here's the thing that's really odd. The more stuff you have, guess what? The more you'll worry about your stuff. It actually ends up producing anxiety. Because now you go, oh my goodness, my house burnt down. I don't even have a list of all my stuff. How am I going to get my stuff back? You know what? If you don't miss it, you didn't need it. The, The thing that you think is going to give you security ends up doing the exact opposite and produces anxiety. And when we talk about this, this is not a prohibition against sensible savings. If you have a retirement account, Jesus does not tell you to go get it and put it in the offering plate today. That's not the application here. He's not saying if you have a 401k or you have stocks and bonds that that you're a sinner. The application is this. Save, but don't serve. Save money, but don't serve money. Know that money is a tool, not ultimately a treasure. Save money, but don't serve money. Jesus is not in any way squashing ambition. He's not saying, hey, all you treasure seekers, y'all are just pathetic. He's not saying, no, if you want treasure, lift up your eyes. Raise your ambition from earthly treasure to true treasure, to spiritual treasure. Treasure things like holiness of character. Souls that are saved, obedience to the gospel, disciples who are nurtured, compassionate use of our stuff, understanding that God gave us our stuff to help others, peace, joy, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, justification by faith. That's the kind of stuff to treasure, not iPhone 6C or whatever it is. Dude with a little earpiece, you know, that's not... Don't treasure that because it will not be cool in like six months. And it's like a never-ending, grasping after things. Well, he continues on and he changes the metaphor. He goes from where your heart, what, what treasure will your heart be set on in 22 and 23 to talking about your eye. Verse 22, he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness. 
So he's using the illustration of the eye, and he's talking about light and darkness. And the metaphor of light and darkness is usually a choice between good and bad, not Luke and Darth. It's, you know, like moral goodness, God versus evil. And he's using, saying your eye chooses to be filled with light or with darkness. And he's, he's really talking about what your focus is. And the question that he sets before us here with this, this illustration is, what goal will you set your mind to? What are you looking at? What, are you, what, do you, what is your vision? What are you focused upon? Do you have a clear vision or do you live without clear direction? Do you have double vision? You're trying to look at God and you're trying to look at stuff and you're, you're trying to play the field, so to speak. I don't know all the science behind this, but I know enough, and I hope we don't have any ophthalmologists or optometrists here, um, but your eyes don't actually see anything. Your eyes are like windows. They let the light in, and it goes to the back of your eyeball, and everything is like upside down, so I don't know why y'all are like on the roof right now, um, you know, uh, but your brain actually sees. Your light is a passive organ to let your eyes are a passive organ to let light in that your brain then processes. So when he talks about your eye being full of light, he's talking about what is your mind paying attention to? What are you focused on? Is it light? Is it darkness? What is your eye looking at? What is your mind directed to? Is it light or is it darkness? And here's the thing that's bad. It says, if the light that is in you is darkness, how dark is that darkness? He's saying you can take a good thing and make it a bad thing by making it an ultimate thing. Did you get that? I hope I can repeat that. You can, you can make a good thing a bad thing by making it an ultimate thing. If you go, man, what's Jesus talking about here? Not eating. Not eating, pray? That's ridiculous. Well, is food ultimate? No. Can you go without a meal? Yes. In Baptist life, there's a lot of us who could probably go without a meal. Um, he's just saying, food's not ultimate. God is ultimate. And here's the problem. When you talk about what goal, is, what goal have you set your mind to, it's a painful truth, but it's this. Your goal is your God. Your goal is your God. If you're willing to squash everything down for this pursuit, well, then congratulations. Um, if, if your goal, hey, I'm not going to miss work on Sunday. Church works more of a priority than churches. Congratulations. Let me introduce you to your idol of money. You know, well, hey, you know, uh, I just don't want to be bothered. I'm not going to serve at the church because, you know, I kind of want to be I'm retired now. I want to kind of be free. I want to go do stuff. Well, congratulations. Let me introduce you to uh, your idol of self-autonomy. Your goal is your God. He concludes with a last illustration. And he asks the question, which master will you willfully serve? Which master will you willfully serve? He concludes with verse 24. No one can be a slave of two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot be slaves of God and of money, of mammon. The scripture presents really no other option. You will have a master. You will. Whether by design, being intentional, or by default. The truth is, one of your masters will have you too. And the only person 
that will be diluted because the people around you will know who your master is. They will know what your goals are. They'll know what your mindset on. they know what your heart's after. But there will be no maybe about your master. There's no maybe. There's no middle ground. Your friends know it. The only one who's confused about it is you, who is living with your double vision. Oh, yeah, I love God and I love my stuff. I love God and I love my stuff. It's been said that the greatest threat to Christianity is not Marxism. It's not Islam. It's not humanism. It's materialism. We are, after all, the land of plenty. One of God's gracious provisions to our pilgrim forefathers was, look at what this land can do. And we've turned God's blessings perhaps into our greatest curse. We think we can love God during the day and moonlight as a materialist at night. And he says, no, I'm Lord over that stuff too. I'm not just Lord over the 10% that you may or may not give. I'm Lord over all your money. I'm Lord over your car, your house, the stuff that you hide in the closet, your toolbox. I'm Lord over all. And Jesus is saying here that unless God is served with a single-eyed devotion, he's not served at all. Divided loyalty is really just a fancy and acceptable way of talking about deep-seated idolatry. Jesus' words, not mine. He says, as a matter of fact, if you try to play against the two masters, you're going to end up hating one. It doesn't mean like you become an atheist and like this hateful, you know, foam-at-the-mouth kind of person. He just says, your love for one will be so great and your lack of love for the other will be so significant that it will seem like hatred because of the contrast. He's not saying you become a God-hater. You just kind of become a God-neglector because everything else in life becomes more important. Because... Your goal is your God, and you have a master. And you have a treasure that you set your heart upon. That's what he says. What's the antidote to this? Well, Jesus says something else that's really famous. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind. That's not multiple choice. Hey, he's a really good Bible student, so he gets to love God with his mind, but I like to work with my hands. I'll love him. I'll love him. No. There's no exception clause in that. It's love God totally. Don't try to even play the game of gaining the world because you might lose your soul. Wealth is certainly not evil. We've talked about that. We can save money. We just don't serve money. Wealth is not evil, but it is fraught with danger. Use your treasure to make your family not a burden. You know, God bless you if you make your family not a burden. Because in our entitlement age, it seems like that's now like the national pastime, is get stuff for nothing. Use it to help those in need. Use it to prepare for the future. Use it to spread the gospel. But make sure that you use your money rightly. Paul uh, has has a very different approach to money than Judas did. Paul was extraordinarily well-educated. He was like the Princeton graduate of his time. He'd been to the finest schools, studied with the finest scholars. He was the kind of golden-haired child of the Jewish nation, accorded all kinds of privileges and probably a man of no uh, scant influence and resource. But he said, I consider it all rubbish for the prize of knowing the upward call of Christ. I count it all garbage 
In comparison to knowing God in Judas, what did he do with money? He sold out Jesus for 30 coins. One saved but didn't serve. One served and ended up not being not saved. For each of these choices, your treasure, your goal, your master, they reveal something important about us. How much do you treasure Christ? And here's, here's the big question. What wins, faith or food? On this issue of fasting, faith or food? Do you want Christ or do you want crust? Do you want him or do you want ham? Do you want the Bible or do you want bread? Do you want God or do you want your goodies? And fasting is simply a spiritual discipline to say, God, I treasure you. And you are worth more than every spoil, every rich, every treasury that this world can offer me. And I demonstrate it by voluntarily refusing to eat, to seek you. To allowing the grumble in my belly that you have created, these taste buds that you have created with an appetite to be satiated. I forego a normal experience to have a supernatural experience in seeking you. I love this. We have seen an example of this in our, our own life. We... Um, I got choked up in the first service. I thought for sure it's not going to happen twice. Um, sorry. Um, we have made the uh, decision that uh, Chloe is going to go to India this um, fall. And uh, foreign mission trips are not cheap. You know, there, there's, there's a reason, I think, why God calls us to make the sacrifice to go. Because the Great, Commis- Great Com- Commission is not, you know, just for special people. It's for all of us. We either go or we give. We find a way to support it. So we've decided Marcy's going and uh, Chloe is going. And um, ever wanting to be the diligent dad who teaches your kid the value of a dollar, um, we've said, you need to raise a quarter of your money to go. That's like $500, $700. She goes, Dad, I'm 12. I cannot legally work. I'm like, hey, you know, illegal work is fine. You know, we're just going to get, you know. Get your roof in after that hailstorm. You know, there's some good money to be made. You know, we'll do it. And so, uh, you know, we've, we, we prayed about it. We talked about it. And here was the thing that was just so great. Her um, oldest brother and her sister. One got their piggy bank everything that they owned. Here, Chloe. And it shamed me. I'm telling her she's got to raise it herself. And I listen, I'm going to pay part of the bill too, trust me. Um, I don't know that I've ever given my piggy bank to somebody. I don't know that I've given everything. I've given my heart to the Lord. But like my stuff, have I ever completely and totally given it away? No, and I don't want to. <laughs> and here are these kids that they get it. And they go, this is what we're going to do as a family. We want to be a family that supports missions. So here's all of it. Every penny that I own. 
Caleb, it was like 23 cents. <laughs> it was more than that. Uh, you know, and he, the amount is really not what's significant, is it? It's the attitude of the heart that just wants to give. Because there are some things in life that are greater than other things. True treasure doesn't require single-minded devotion. True treasure just kind of brings it. When you know that something is worth it, there is no sacrifice too great that you're willing to pay. And so this morning, as you hear this conversation about like not eating in order to pray, I completely understand how ridiculous and ludicrous that sounds to you. But for those who have tasted and seen that Jesus is what he says, he is the bread of life. He's worth it. And so this morning, this kind of religious obligation and the tremendous privileges and benefits that come along with it, if, if it doesn't make any sense to you, <clears throat> it's because regardless of how long you've gone to church, you don't have a relationship with the Lord. And that's something that we delight in helping people with. For some of you, you may have been a Christian for a long time, but the call of discipleship for you to sacrifice has been something that you've avoided for a long time. There are every day opportunities for you to sacrifice and to follow God. And so as we have the, the, the chance to pray and to um, follow God, what response do you need to make? How do you need to be a disciple? Let me pray for us. <clears throat> God, we thank you for the privilege of being your follower. God, you have paid the price. There is nothing we can do to earn, merit, gain your attention. Uh, but God, because of your ultimate beauty and the treasure that you are for us, there is no sacrifice that should be off limits for us. We, we should be able and willing and joyful to break our piggy banks for the kingdom of God because if we have you, we have everything. And if we don't have you, we have nothing. And so, God, make that very real to us. So we have the opportunity this morning as God's gathered people to uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper. Lord, it's not ironic that in a conversation about fasting, we have the opportunity to feast upon your meal. Lord, we pray that you help us to examine our hearts. And as we partake as, as our normal custom in these elements, may we do it with the instruction we've just received from your word upon our hearts, that you are worthy. You've given us of your mercy that we might live new life. So God, we pray that we might worship you through this act in Jesus' name.